0: Acts chapter 1, Do you remember after Jesus resurrected, he comes back. The Bible says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. Now, you've got to try to picture this scene. Here's the disciples standing around the resurrected Jesus, still reeling from everything that's happened, trying to figure all this out. Uh, you know, I don't know if this was like slowly he starts going up in front of them, you know. But anyway, they're watching as all this is happening. He's taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, I mean, it's already like the craziest day of your lifetime's a million. As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, okay... So now it just, you know, got even crazier. They said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will soon come in like manner as you saw him go unto heaven." So they're standing there, Jesus ascends, and so they're just sort of, you know, standing there waiting for whatever's going to happen next then two angels appear and say, hey, why are you standing here? He's going to come back just like he went. Well, that's not that helpful because still they, they don't have any concept of time. So if me and you were in that situation, I don't know what you would do, but I'm going to tell you what I would do. So here we are, we're in that situation. Two angels come and say, okay, he's going to come back the way he came. I'm looking at you, and I'm saying, I don't know what you got going, but Tone's staying here. I mean, I'm staying right there, because I'm thinking, well, I mean, the way my day's going, I'm, I'm going to wait here. And so they probably were there, and then, you know, sort of one by one, you ever seen that, uh, you know, that game where, you know, there's a car, and everybody puts their hand on the car, and whoever's the last one with their hand on the car wins the car. So like, basically, whoever can not go to the bathroom the longest wins the car or there's a duck dynasty episode where they're doing that over a sigh and Willie are doing that over a wood chipper that's pretty hilarious you should check that out so but the point is and then one by one they sort of fall off you know everybody puts their hand on the car with the intention of I'm going to win the car I'm going to go the distance but as time goes on and so there they are standing there waiting for Jesus to come back you know Bob Finally, he's like, man, I got to go back to work. And then Lou is like, you know, well, I'm going to go home and take a nap. And, you know, so they start dropping off one by one, going back to their sort of way of life. And so as time goes forward, just think about now the people who were there that witnessed this, the, the disciples that witnessed this. As time goes forward, they're not getting hotter, they're getting cooler. See, two weeks later, they're less intense about his return than they were in that moment. What about two months, two years? And so as time goes on, they, the more they get back into the routine of life, the more they get back into the things that they're doing. Now, granted, there's, you know, there's a lot of people waiting. Uh, the next couple of years are pretty, uh, especially the next few months and the next year, very uh, packed full of things for the apostles, but still time, distance, cools them off. It doesn't heat them up. Eventually, most people just go back to what they're doing. Then as all the eyewitnesses die out, now you've got that generation gone. You've got new generations coming up that are just sort of predicating their anticipation of Christ's return on what they've been told by somebody else. So let's focus on the fact that Jesus is coming back the way he left. So when he makes good on his promise to return, it's, it won't be Hollywood science fiction, or it won't be acting, but it's going to be real physical, and it's going to be a catastrophic event. And this is what Peter wants us to see in this third chapter as he's wrapping up everything that he's said so far in this letter. When it happens, he's going to destroy. He will destroy the world as we know it and bring judgment against those who oppose him. Now, we could get into all the things that that means. We could get, all, we could get into all the fascinating things that uh, we know and that we suspect and think and all sorts of conjecture around that. And you would probably thoroughly enjoy that, but that's not the point of this text And that would merely uh, serve as a rabbit trail for us and we we would lose sight of what God's trying to speak to us in this particular passage of Scripture. What Peter wants us to do is to remember so that we can remain hot and not grow cold as we're waiting. So the first thing he wants us to do is remember what God has said. Remember what God has said. So the third chapter opens up, beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoke before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So for the last three weeks, we've talked about these scoffers, these false teachers, and we've identified all the characteristics of them. So now you're all theological experts on false teachers. And so now all of that information is coming to bear on the central thing that the false teachers are trying to keep us from uh, living for or realizing. So these opening verses of chapter 3 reveal the fact that our Father is deeply and affectionately concerned that we never lose our conviction that Jesus will come back. He says, beloved. In other words, there's this term of endearment. And he says, I'm writing you this second letter. Just like the first one, by way of reminder that you'll be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets, the scriptures, by what God said through God's prophets to God's people about God's plan. All of these things fit together, and these are of critical importance. But it's a problem, as you're going to see tonight, what we're going to talk about is how we struggle with this. We struggle with this issue of Christ's return. We get off track. We, get, we, get into, uh, we spend our time thinking about things that we shouldn't be thinking about. We get uh, distracted by things that aren't even uh, related. And one of the reasons are, is because we're living in this tension of urgently waiting. Which is a very strange place to be. Because waiting seems to be like this you know docile passive boring you know can't wait for it to be over urgent is the opposite of that and yet what we're in is this urgent waiting where we're waiting but we're not waiting in boredom we're waiting with great urgency there's things that need to be accomplished we're longing for his return and yet at the same time we're not losing our passion for his mission in his absence. So if you think about it, when it comes to the return of Christ, we want to be on the welcoming committee. We don't want to be on the planning committee. But most people spend their time trying to be on the planning committee. You see, what the Bible would tell us is when it comes to the return of Christ, what is our primary responsibility? It's not, it's not prophesying or prognosticating or trying to guess or entertain ourselves or amuse ourselves or, or exercise our great imagination about all sorts of things. None of those things are what we should be focused on. What we should be focused on is preparing ourselves for this inevitable event. But what ends up happening is we get distracted. You know, we're just standing around and we're, we got our hand on the car and we're trying to be the last one with our hand on the car so we win the car. And then, back to my Duck Dynasty illustration, the reason Cy got the wood chipper is because Willie got distracted. Well, his brother threw a football at him, but he got distracted. He wasn't paying attention, and he took his hand off the wood chipper. And so what happens to us, especially down here in the South, is that a lot of us get distracted by footballs. That just happened to work that way. You see, if you think about it, who cares when Christ is coming if your neighbor doesn't know that he's on his way? But what does everybody want to talk about what is that what are what is all the time and energy and effort spent what are where's all the book sales where are all the uh, uh, what's all the conference topics centered around when is he coming To our shame and embarrassment, if you uh, look at the top-selling Christian books at the moment, or over the, especially since the uh, pandemic started, it's all a bunch of nonsense. Everybody, you know what the Christian community is? They're head over heels, obsessed with the return of Christ, trying to find out some biblical mystery or decode the bible in some way and it's all just a big joke it's just a big joke it's, it's so ridiculous and the thing about it is this is what i wonder to myself all these people that are buying these books don't have a bible they don't have a bible i mean who's buying the books the only thing that would make sense to me is if there were People that lived in countries where the Word of God was illegal and no one possessed a Bible and they were interested and curious, so the only thing they could do is get one of these weird books. That's the only thing that would make sense to me. But if you have a Bible, and I'm not naive to think n- enough to think that nobody in this room is reading those books. I know better. It's absurd. You have a Bible. Think of how stupid that is. It's just unbelievably ridiculous. Or who cares if you know who the Antichrist is if your neighbor doesn't know who Jesus is? I mean, if I hear one more conversation about the Antichrist, I'm going to scream. So this is, what I'm, this is what I would implore you to do. The next time somebody engages you in some conversation about uh, their imagination, because that's all it is. When somebody wants to get you in this big conversation about, oh, may, is so-and-so the Antichrist, or is this or that or whatever. Just do this. Just say, let them finish, because you don't want to be rude. And so when they take a breath, just say, when was the last time you led somebody to faith in Christ? Just ask them that question. When was the last time you led somebody to faith in Christ? See, God knew that the longer Jesus tarries, the greater chance his followers would have of becoming discouraged. And the greater chance they would have of falling prey to the false teachers who scoff at his return. See, he knew that. And here's the reality. If Jesus isn't returning, then what is our motivation for keeping his commands? I mean, there's very little motivation, if any, at all. We, you see, so... Everything hinges upon this. And then at the same time, that leads you, sort of, if you follow the breadcrumbs from there, that will lead you to why are the false teachers so obsessed with this issue? I would say most of the books that most people are buying are written by false teachers, they're false teachers. They're not even Christians. And why are they writing all these books? And why are they obsessed with this issue? Why, why do uh, the powers of this world want you to get wrapped up in spending all your time thinking about the end times? See, the motivation of the false teachers is wholly about advancing Satan's agenda through immorality. That's exactly what Peter says in verse 3. Knowing that there'll be scoffers that'll come in the last days, and what does he say? Walking according to their own lust, which is exactly what we've just talked about over the last couple of weeks, right? And so they're going to... Obviously, false teachers are motivated by Satan's agenda. Satan's agenda is to do anything that's going to derail or hinder our faith because our faith is the central thing that he's uh, against because that's the thing that is uh, most powerfully against him and he hates the person that we have faith in. And so it's always an attack on our faith. But look at how it, it's, it's an agenda through immorality. Now it's interesting to me that 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament talk about the return of Christ. So clearly this is a huge issue for New Testament believers. And yet there's many in the church today who would say they believe in the return of Christ, but they don't live in a way that validates that is true. Because see, the thing is, is that Because, see, the thing is, is that it's like everything else now. It's come down to semantics. It comes down to words. You know, we, we live in a culture where, you know, if somebody asks you a question, you can't even answer the question because you have to get down to the, you have to figure out what's the definition of the words that they're using because you can't assume that the two of you think that the word means the same thing anymore, right? So, when it comes to the return of Christ, you know, if you were to poll exit poll people leaving church on Sunday morning in evangelical churches in the United States, I mean, it would be, if you were polling them, do you believe in the return of Christ? I mean, I don't know. I would be shocked if it was less than 99.9%. Yes. But then the issue becomes... Well, what is it that you know about the return of Christ? What, what do you believe? What do you mean when you hear me say the return of Christ? Because clearly what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ, if you believed what the Bible says about that, it would create something inside of you that would be evident in the way that you live and the things that you do. Because of the way the Bible talks about it. The, the things God wants us to know about it. Now, why would a professing Christian live like a scoffer? That's a great question. Why would a professing Christian live like a scoffer? Live like someone who truly doesn't believe in what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ. And the answer is because living in obedience to Christ's commands will bring mockery from the world in which we live in. And mockery is the one thing we cannot stand. We cannot stand it. Why are we most sensitive to mockery? Well, let's go First Corinthians. Because mockery is the kryptonite for a culture with fragile identities. It is the absolute kryptonite. Think about it. Who does not... Who, who is least impacted by the mockery of the culture the person who is most secure in who they are right the only reason mockery from the culture would bother someone is if they had a fragile identity now now let's just think this all the way through biblically a professing christian living like a scoffer In light of the fact that the Bible says multiple times in multiple ways that if you live a life obedient to Christ you will bring upon yourself persecution and oppression from the culture around you in every age in every culture is that not true and so it is a foregone conclusion that obedience is going to bring this you know that coming into it and yet Nobody's up for mockery these days. No. Mm -mm. We're going to do anything to just, you know, tuck our head in and stay with our, you know, stay with our tribe. whatever, whatever Whatever our group is, our position is, or whatever, but not just trying to keep out of the, you know, so it doesn't get personal against us. So he goes on to say, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Hmm. So all things continue. So what Peter's doing here is he's answering one of the primary ways that the false teachers are getting people to disbelieve in the physical, literal return of Christ. And so what they're doing is presenting this the same, it's the same heresy that they're always presenting. They're trying to get the, separate the physical and the spiritual because if they can do that, then immorality runs rampant and then they achieve the agenda that they're after. And so they'll say, well, God's not coming back physically because he already did that. That's already happened, that's already done, and so there won't be any more physical resurrection. There might be a spiritual resurrection, but, the, but there won't be a physical resurrection. Now, what would be the benefit of that? Well, if there's no physical resurrection, then whatever you do in the physical body doesn't matter. And if whatever you do in the physical, I mean, can you imagine if I stood up here tonight and I explained to you and convinced you that somehow Uh, the only thing that matters is what you do spiritually and whatever you do physically is of no consequence the damage that that would create it would be a disaster and so that's what they're doing and so what and then they're, they're using science just like we do today they're saying look the world is going on nature is set in course science proves and disproves everything and so You know it's not changing anything anything outside the bounds of nature and what's happening scientifically is illogical and impossible and so it's functional atheism it's church-going people wanting the forgiveness of God while living as if God no longer intervenes in the world you see it's just this you know I believe in God I believe in the return of Christ you know, I believe in these things, but I'm living. If, if I didn't know and I was just observing from the outside, it would appear to me that the way people's lives are being lived as if they believe that God sort of got the world spinning and then took his hands off it and went on to something else and just left it spinning. And so it's all just going to sort of take its course, work itself out, you know, play out to the end. And it's just going. And he's not involved in the... And and wouldn't it be easy to convince everyone of that? Because all I would have to do is start pointing out all the problems in the world. And I would say, now, you see, the reason why things are so bad is because God's not involved in it. If God were involved in it, it wouldn't be going so bad. And we'd make this whole crazy case, which would completely be illogical because it would ignore the fact that the world was just as depraved and chaotic and destructive when Jesus was walking on it, literally and physically, right? But sensibly and culturally, we could all fall into the same belief, and many have, that we're going on at this time about dysfunctional atheism. So God doesn't, he doesn't intervene in the natural order of things. The rules of science aren't broken. You know, whatever's scientifically proven is scientifically proven, and that's the way it's going to be and that's the way it's going to stay we only believe that which we observe see i don't think a lot of christians say that but i think a lot of christians live that way i only believe that which i can observe now if our theology doesn't have space desire and anticipation that god can and does break into the natural order then we have bad theology Really bad theology. Because hasn't God always from the onset been a God who defies logic and who breaks into the natural order? I mean, hasn't that always been his mode of operandum? You know, God could have shown up to Moses. He could have, you know, walked up to him like a regular person, incognito. And he could have had a normal conversation with him. And he you know, could have just seen where that... But that's not how God did it. God reveals himself in a supernatural way. God accomplishes things. Jesus comes on the scene. And what is he doing? He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. He's rescuing orphans. He's doing all these supernatural things that are defying the normal, logical order of things, aren't they? Sure. Sure. And here's the way I see it. The way I see it is if you profess Christ and you live as a functional atheist, it is the most joyless, boring, monotonous, religious way to live in the world. I mean, when was the last time? Not when was the last time that you, you know said you know gave God credit for something that was due him but that could have happened apart from God now when was the last time that something happened in your life that is absolutely unexplainable apart from the presence of God that is God intervening in the natural order right in front of your face in your own life I thought about this today because the, the, uh, that, uh, that story came out, uh, a national media story came out about uh, Rescue 100 and the family in our church. And I posted the uh, audio to that on our website, if you haven't heard it yet, but on the Facebook page. But the point is, I was thinking about all that, and so it was bringing back all these memories. And so then I, I was remembering... You know, moments when God had done those things in my life. I was thinking about uh, little Presley Sibley and how I was driving down the road. You've heard me tell this story. I was, I was driving down Orange Grove Road. I know exactly where I was when my phone rang, and I looked down at my phone, and It's somebody that I know that I haven't talked to in a couple years. And I picked up the phone. It's a pastor at another church. And I said, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, it's been years. How's things going? And he said, Tony, I got a problem. I think you can help me with it. And I go, okay, what is it? And he said, I got this uh, family that uh, is just really wanting to adopt a child and they are have tried infertility and tried this and tried that and they're a great family and he goes through this whole thing you know and i'm and i'm like okay you know like i'll do the best i can but that's not something i can just make happen but i'll do the best i can and so I hung up the phone, and I just remember thinking like, feeling this weight of, man. And so I keep going down Orange Grove Road, like all this happens so fast, I haven't even made it to Canal Road yet. And just as I'm coming up to Canal Road, my phone rings, and it's another person who's in my phone that I haven't talked to in years, it's my daughter's, you know, my daughter that just had a baby, it's her eighth grade art teacher. That's how long it's been since I talked to her. And I'm like, hello? You know, I'm thinking, like, uh, is, did she not turn in her homework from 10 years ago? I'm like, what? You know, what is going on today? Hello? And she's like, hey, Tony, I, you know, I got a problem, and I think you can help me. And I'm going, okay. And she goes, I got this lady, and she's eight months pregnant, and she wants to give this baby up for adoption, and I need somebody to, that needs to adopt a kid. I mean, I'm, I just pulled over on the side of the road right there. What happened? In literally five minutes. And so I went on Facebook today, and I was, you know, I should have sent that to Lisa so she could see, like little Presley's walking around, and, you know, and, you know, and, I'm, and I just remember, like, all that happened on Orange Grove Road in five minutes. God just did that, boom, right there. That's the way God operates. And as amazing as it is and encouraging as it is, but that's how he operates. That shouldn't shock us or surprise us. I mean, that's how he operates. So He does that. And so we remember what God said, but then we, we need to remember what he's done. We need to remember what he's done. Because what he said and what he's done lines up. See, I just wonder how many times God's people are in a position where God's ready to intervene in the natural order in their life, but He doesn't because we don't give them a chance. We just write it off. You know why? Because we're living like functional atheists we just look at something and go well that's impossible or that won't happen or that and so we just write it off which is insane we shouldn't do that okay look at verse 5 for this they willfully forget that by the word of god the heavens the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So here's what happens. What Peter does is he points out that the scoffers overlook that the sovereign hand of God actually has interrupted chaos with order and interrupted order with chaos many times before in history. That here's what what Peter's saying to the functional atheists of this moment in, in, in the Bible and this moment in our culture right now. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, now, there was nothing, and I spoke order into nothing. Everything that is was created by my word and this, this, all this order, that everything fits together so that when... When we need rain, we get rain. And when we need sun, we get sun. And and all the different things work together. And the weather patterns work together. And the ecosystem works together. And all these inexplainable things, how everything just happens to work together. According to his perfect plan, this evidence of his perfect design, all of that order came out of nothing. He speaks it into order. And then what does he do? Shortly after he puts it all into order, he what? Then he turns it into chaos and floods the whole thing and then restored it back to order again so this idea that God doesn't doesn't interrupt the natural process is ridiculous it's ridiculous so maybe you know just as a side note for you tonight, I don't know what you're dealing with in your life or going through in your life. But I would just encourage you that if you, if you come in here tonight and you're greatly weighted down by something, you need to be reminded that God is not confined to the natural order. He's not confined to the natural order. Let that encourage your heart. And as you pray, do not pray like a functional atheist. Pray like a person that understands the God in which you're praying to. And, and avail yourself to the possibilities of the things that He's doing around you. And here's the thing. It's, it's not that, uh, uh, you know, God's, uh, God's work in your life I'm not, I don't want you to, to think that what I'm telling you is that God's work is 100% predicated upon your reaction or position or understanding. Because that's just not true. That's not true. Most of the time when God's doing supernatural things in the Bible, it's catching the people around him totally off guard, right? So, but what I'm saying is, is that when you see something that's outside the. First of all, as you're, if you're in need of something, don't relegate yourself to the natural order as you're praying and seeking God's face. But then, if you see something that that begins to look like it might be out of the natural order, don't panic and retreat. Move into that. Move into it. So his holy interruptions come by the power of his word. All of that, everything that that Peter's describing in verses 5, 6, and 7, are all the power of his word creating that scenario, making all that happen. And so he says in verse 8, But beloved, so again, putting this affectionate term, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as, as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So this idea of time as we're waiting urgently. God's omniscient and omnipresent. He views all time as equally near. And so what's helpful I think for you to understand because if I've ever had a conversation with you individually about this, then we've already had this conversation because I've had this hundreds and hundreds of times with people. One of the things I really desire for everybody to know about God as God relates to time is this, that whenever God looks at your life, He does not see your life in the in defined by the moment that you're in. You see, the only thing we know about our life is where we are today and what we remember about where we've been and everything ahead of us is a complete mystery. But when God looks at you, God sees the totality. Everything that God does in your life is is with the full understanding of everything that's going to occur throughout the entire span of your life. Does that make sense? So whenever he makes a decision to do something in your life or whenever he acts in your life or works in your life or does something in your life, that is done in the totality of your life from birth to death. He doesn't see you in a daily moment by moment because God's not confined to time. And I think that's very important for us to understand. So when God brings something into your life, here's what you should know about that what's significant about that is the timing that he brought it into your life now but what you're going to need to know to steward that thing well is you're going to have to understand that if you think that that his timing if he brings it into your life now if that's his timing that that somehow means that whatever it is he's brought into your life now you know, you're looking for something to happen the next day, the day after that, whatever in this immediate time. You're you're making a mistake. It could be that or it could not be that, but don't put God in that box. God doesn't operate in that box. Whatever he does in your life today, he's doing what's good and right for you in the totality of all the days you have remaining. And with full knowledge of all the days that have already passed in your life, full knowledge of everything that you've experienced and everything that you've been through. So all of your ups and all of your downs, all your wounds, all your scars, what he's doing today is with all of that fully in mind and fully knowing everything that's going to happen in the future. That's a great encouragement. When people think that God thinks like we do, you you are going to be frustrated with God constantly. See, God doesn't own a watch. He doesn't wear a watch. He doesn't even own a watch because He's not concerned about time. He's concerned about timing. And there's a huge difference. You see, if if somebody asks you, well, well, when is Christ going to return? The answer is in the perfect time. According to God's perfect timing. In the same way that he can't... Think about the incarnation. The Bible says that, that Jesus comes. He's born of a virgin when? When the fullness of time had come. that You know what that means? Timing. That's what that means. It's, he's all about timing. Not time. But you know what? Every conversation that we have... I mean, I don't. You do. I don't have time. I want to focus on timing. I'm not having a bunch of conversations about all that nonsense. But you know what all those conversations are? They're all conversations about time. And I just want to scream and go, Stop talking about time. Because what you're doing is wasting it. What you should be focused on is The timing of God. And you know what? The timing of God. Here's what I know about. You know what I know about the timing of God? I know this. The timing of God is that he's put me today where I am today. He's put breath in my lungs today to be the best steward I can be of what is put before me today. The question isn't, God, when are you going to come? The question is, God, who do you want me to share the gospel with today? that's the question so that when he does come when his timing which we'll never know occurs we'll be prepared for that we'll be on the welcoming committee because you know all the people run around on the planning committee it doesn't go well for them there's a few parables that that give us that insight it's not it's not good it's not good The servant that's unprepared for the return of the master, it's not good. That never goes well in Scripture, does it? No. A thousand years, that quote from Psalm 90, a thousand years is like a day. So when you think about that, so in God's timing, if we want to play the time game, Good, let's play the time game for a second. Jesus ascended in the book of Acts where we started two days ago. So what are we impatient about? It's two days. I mean, but the false teachers have got everyone convinced it's been so long he must have forgotten oh so let's come up with plan B let's come up with plan C let's start let's start coming up with all these signs and verse 9 so the Lord is not slack concerning his promise well, of course he's not as some count slackness who it's not just the false teachers you know who it is it's all the people that the false teachers are influencing and you know what a lot of them are sheep that he's trying to lead, they're trying to lead astray. But instead of being slack, but as long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Huh. So, Instead of casting doubt on his promise, God's seeming delay actually, you see how the whole the table just got flipped on this whole script? And it's almost like Peter comes in, almost pandering for a moment. You can almost feel the tension of, you know, it's been so long. We've been standing here so long holding on to this car. Like, how long is it gonna be? And now, it's like, well, it's not long. What are you talking about? And however long it's been is the opposite of what it seems. In other words, it's not the the length of time between the time he left and the time he comes back has nothing to do with him not keeping his promise or him being distracted or him having other things to do. No, it's, it reveals his heart. See, he's not waiting because he lacks power or knowledge or authority or ability or... No, he's waiting because he's full of mercy. Mercy. And so you know what? Think about this. So here we are. We've talked about this in here before. Here we are. Now we've got this. Now we really step into what urgent waiting is, don't we? Because now you think about this with me for a second. Supposing you came in here tonight and you're a child of God. You have a relationship with God. God saved you. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So then, you just want God to come now because you want to be with Him, and so do I. But He's not. He didn't come today. He hasn't come as of yet. He might come before I end tonight, but He hasn't come yet. So as of this moment right now, He hasn't come. So what does that tell us about this God who saved us? this good father that we have what does it mean if, if he's a good and perfect just god if he hasn't come now then the only implication of that can be that the most merciful kind and patient thing that can do that he could do is to tarry a little longer right and for what reason so that is is he just playing hide and seek with us is he just trying to stretch us out is he trying to challenge us to see who can keep their hand on the car the longest well of course he's not i mean clearly he would only he would only wait for a very 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 good reason couldn't we all agree on that So what do you think the number is? Never heard the name of Jesus today. You think there's a good reason? There's your latest statistic. Hot off the press. You know why? He tarries. He won't tarry forever he won't wait forever but he's waited so far and there's 3.14 billion reasons people created in his image that he loves that have opportunity that the moment he returns the door's shut it's over that's it nobody it's done And so what what does a what does a culture of functional atheists do in light of 3.14 billion unreached people? Well, remember, we're not atheists in the culture. We're just functional atheists. So what would functional atheists do? What would people do who want the forgiveness of God and profess to believe in the return of Christ but live in such a way as if they don't? Well, what would they do? Well, clearly, they would not be engaged in mission. What they would do is be engaged in something that masquerades as mission. That's obvious. And so guess what we do? There's your latest number. Seventy-five percent of missionaries sent go to reached people. I wonder why that is. It's functional atheism. You know where? You know? You know who's easy to get to? Reached people. You don't have to go. You don't have to go far. You don't have to go. To, you can get to them. You can get to the reach. So you, you know we go. We go to. We go to places that are. If we if we can get away with it, those that's, those seventy five percent is. You'd be astonished at how many of that missionaries and that percentage. Go to first and second world countries where there are roads and infrastructures and sanitation. Yeah. And here's the thing, the whole system is predicated on failure. Because you know what you know what happens in a in a normal, average situation? Is a guy like me stands up and says to a people that looks something like you, but is not like you, thank God, but they look like you in a place that looks just like this. And he says what makes sense. He says, you know what, doing something's better than doing nothing. And so you know what? Let's do something. And, so, and then the something that we're going to do, well, we've got to do something that people will do. And so, I mean, I can't... I mean, who's going who's to load up and go somewhere where there's, you know... No roads and no infrastructure and no... Well, no one wants to do that. And so what we do is we become... Pragmatic, meaning we, we base the mission on what, what will work, what we can get people to cooperate with. But well, that's not the mission. See, the mission isn't that Jesus didn't say, hey, do this if you can get some folks on board with you. He just said, do this. Even if you're alone, do this. If you're by yourself, do this. Isn't that what he said? Yeah. And believe me, it's not easy. And you know what you get? You get pushback. That's what you get. And you get mockery at times. I can't tell you how many times this church has been mocked by the powers that be because we have chosen to delegate so many of our dollars towards doing the work that God called us to do rather than giving it away so that some other organization or group can do it on our behalf. And so, so you know what? The status quo doesn't like that. They don't like it. And so they mock us. And you can see how much it bothers me. I mean, I can't sleep at night. I'm so worried about what they think. I cry myself to sleep every night. 23.7% of missionaries go to the unevangelized. So you think about what it takes. And one in four, and we wonder why. We wonder why. So you see, all of this is tied together. You could, you know, what you could say, you could, you could make the case, you could make the case today that the problem in the evangelical church of today with regards to accomplishing the mission that God's given us to do is bad theology about the return of Christ. Because if we believed what the Bible said about the return of Christ, then we would not be doing the things that we're doing. The numbers prove that it's functional atheism. That's what it is. That's the only way you can explain it. And so let me, let me end on a high note. Let me, let me explain to you how we got to where we are. Like not we, as a but we. Okay? Let me, let me explain to you how this works. The reason that we... We, for example, try to evangelize by thinking that if we can create fear in people about the return of Christ, that it will will pay an evangelistic dividend. That if you can get your neighbor to understand that God's coming back, the fear of the fact that God's coming back in judgment will drive them to faith in Christ. Again, Logically, sounds logical, doesn't it? Sure, and there's whole ginormous segments of evangelicalism today based on that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that grace is not a license to sin, it's a magnet to holiness. That what, what the lost world needs to know is the fact that God's coming back and that's a reality and that should be, uh, uh, that should be a, a source of uh, fear and trepidation in your life. But the most important thing is the grace of the window that's presented itself right now. See, grace is the key. But what happens is we've moved into this lane where... The church is getting increasingly more afraid of grace because we think if you talk about grace too much, if you unleash the grace of God on a group of people, then they're going to all live like hell. That's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. See, living holy is never a result of the fear of being left behind. It's never. that, That never works. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. What it teaches is living holy results from knowing, being known and loved by a father who's coming back to get his kids. If anything's going to wake us up and get us busy about, you, you see, that the thing is, is. The reason what drives me to do the things that I do, what drives us as a fellowship to do the things that we do, is the belief that a loving Father who knows... Here's the thing, the crazy thing is that He knows everything about us and still loves us. And He's coming back to get His kids. Nothing motivates me more to do the will of God and the purpose of God and accomplish the mission of God than that. Because if I'm afraid of, if I'm afraid of the fact that God's going to come back and he's going to find me unprepared for his return, which is a reasonable thing to be afraid of, but play that out. If tonight you're sitting here and you've thought to yourself a couple times during tonight, you've thought to yourself uh, that you've felt this little fear well up inside of you about the return of Christ and the fact that you're, not, you're clearly not living in a way that makes you prepared for that to happen. It's not the first time that that's happened. And yet you still feel the way you feel. So the last time that happened, it didn't, it didn't solve the problem. And tonight's not going to solve the problem. Because you know what you're going to do tomorrow? You see, you're going to run over there and you're going to put your hand on the car. And you're going to be saying, no, I'm waiting for you, Lord. I'm waiting for you to keep your hand. But as time passes, more and more people around you are going to take their hand off the car. And you're going to take your hand off the car. Because you know what? Two weeks from now, you're not going to be scared about that. Because you're not going to be thinking about that. Because you're going to be thinking about something else. But if you're consumed with the fact that your heavenly Father who loves you is coming back to get you. Once that sets into your heart, things start to change. Because here's the thing. All the things that I'm afraid to do, all the things that don't make sense to me, all the things that seem impossible to me, all the things that we together go, well, how are we going to do that? Suddenly become into the realm of possibility. Why? Because a loving Father who knows everything, including me, Is coming back to get his kids. So what do I got to fear about accomplishing his mission? But if I'm just afraid that he's going to come back and catch me not ready, then guess what the reality is? No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, you're never going to be ready. You're never going to be acceptable. What do you? It's works. You're conning yourself into works. Work your works, my works, and your works. On our best day, the Bible says, "are filthy rags." So, what do you think? You think that somehow, some way, you're going to have a handful of filthy rags, and it's on the day he comes back, you go, "Look, God," and he's going to go, "Yay, you made it." That's never going to happen. But at the realization that your loving father's coming to get his kids, see, my dad's coming to get me and take me home and he loves me and he already knows all about my filthy rags and so you know what i'm just going to do the things that i can do to accomplish the mission that he's left for me to do because i know that in his love grace and mercy he's not he he hasn't come back yet so it must be really that 3.14 billion people must matter a whole lot to him So what if we got up tomorrow and went to work? And instead of going to work to earn a paycheck, we went to work with the realization that as we earn a paycheck, you know what we're doing? We can go to work and earn a paycheck and make a wage that will allow us to participate in what God's called us to do, to what our Heavenly Father Deems of ultimate importance. You see, he hasn't called us all to do the same thing. But he's called us all to work towards the same goal. And so what if you started thinking about what you're doing every day in light of how does that enable you to make a few extra dollars... To be able to give directly to God's mission or to be able to speak to people, share the gospel with people that might bring them into the family of God or people that know God that you can bring into the reality or the realization that they too need to participate. That the whole thing all starts working together. And instead of fearing, you you know what, you know what, here's what we all do. Every single one of us, you know what we do when we're afraid? We freeze. That's what scared people do. They lock up. The last thing God wants you to do while he tarries and doesn't come is to freeze. He wants you to be moving and be active. And fear is not going to get you there. Grace is. So when all that legalistic fear bears up inside of you, instead of running to Mount Sinai to see what we can what can be done in the law, let me just tighten up the law. Let me get the law out and let's tighten it up. Let me just let me just start mimicking the rich young ruler who keeps all the commandments since his youth. What a fiasco. Let's don't do that. Let's run to Mount Calvary and see what's already been done at the cross. And then realize, my goodness, how could it be that I could be loved with such intensity by my Heavenly Father? That He would put me in a position where I had nothing to fear. Nothing to lose. You think about it. Everything that God gave you. Have you ever thought about this? Everything that God has given you. he's, He's promised. He'll never take them away. If fear was a good motivator... If fear would outdo grace, then God would have done everything differently, would he? You think he would have came and saved people and said, hey, you know what? Nothing that's ever been created above the earth, under the earth, nothing could ever separate you from my love. Nothing could ever take you out of the palm of my hand. All he would have had to do was say, look, I'm going to let you hold on to this salvation, but if you don't do a good job, I'm going to snatch it back from you. And then we'd all be running around in fear, wouldn't we? That's not what he did. Everything he's ever given you in Christ, he gave it to you and he'll never take it back. What a father we have. What else will we do?